0: Pray once more. Oh Lord, the song that we just sang is the prayer. You are great, you are God, and you are a great God. And so I ask from your word today will you show us that? Will you show us yourself? Will you warm our hearts, fill our hearts? stabilize our hearts, ground our hearts, build up our hearts in you with the truth. So let your word be clear to us today. Let it be more than clear, though. Let it dwell richly within us. Let us leave here today different by virtue of seeing you, your greatness, that you are God. You are what we need. You are the change we need. You are the hope we need. It is you. Show us you now, I pray. Amen. Well, David has a problem, and it's your problem too. We, we all have this problem. Every generation of Christians has had this problem. Why does God allow the evil to do wicked things to the innocent? Why? Whether the wicked be individuals or nations, seems here that David is thinking about both. Why, oh God, do you stand by and let it happen? Because you're God. You're God. You, you spoke everything into existence. Spoke it. You, you flicked the seven stars of the Pleiades into their place in the sky. You did that. You make it rain on the evil and the good. You, you give breath to every single person. And that one too, <laughs> and that one too comes from God. You, you do all of this to every man, woman, and child, and you are the God whom Proverbs 21 1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, God, turns it, the king's heart, wherever he will. God possesses total authority, total capability, total sovereignty to direct everything and he does even the hearts of men. So if that's you, O oh God, then why, verse one, why do you stand far off when the wicked terrorize and abuse the innocent? <laughs> Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever watched the news and thought, what, what, God, what? Um, today, many Christians ask the same questions. While, while the institutions Institutions that you have loved and trusted and, and sacrificed for are, are torn down by angry mobs. You, you wonder the same thing. Why is God standing aloof and letting this happen? So we need to listen to David here as he faces his own threats and enemies. He brings them before God in the first stanza. Um, and then in the second stanza, shorter stanza, he remembers afresh, as David often does in the Psalms, who he's, who he's talking to. Oh yeah, God. (laughs) Um, And then thirdly, he gains a solid confidence. So first, his his candid complaint, and then he remembers who he's talking to, and then in the end, he gains a solid confidence. First, let's see how he gets to that solid confidence, starting with his candid complaint. So that comes up in verses 2 through 11, his candid complaint. And David gets right to his ask of God, let the wicked fall in their own schemes, just like Haman who hung on the gallows that he had designed for Mordecai in the book of Esther. And this is the same request, if you may remember from last week, from Psalm 9, leading some people to believe that these two psalms are actually, at one point, were written at the same time and were connected together. But, but really, this entire section, verses 2 through 11, is David complaining to God Candidly about the wicked. Verse two, they're arrogant. They hotly pursue the poor, like, like with a lust. Verse three, they don't hide their desires. On the contrary, they boast of their lusts. They boast of them. They're not just greedy, they outwardly curse and renounce the Lord. And yet, with all the full flowering of, of the weeds of their sin, the, the root of it, is verse four, that they say proudly that there is know God. That's the root. And oh, how they prosper, David says, verse 5. It's as if to them, your judgments, your laws are right up there with the stars too, too far away to be seen. So that whenever anyone challenges them, they just brush them off like like a bully on the playground in school. And he looks at his prosperity, the the evildoer does, and he says with self-satisfaction, verse 6, I shall never be moved or meet adversity. That's how they live, God, David says. He may speak fine words, verse 7, educated words, refined words perhaps, but those words are full of cursing and deceit and oppression and mischief and iniquity. Iniquity, that word means sin, but a kind of sin that is not only wicked, but injures everybody else around that sin, within the blast radius of that sin. Thus, verses 8 and 9, he sits and hides, and lurks. He lurks, stealthily watching for opportunities to take advantage, especially of the poor. It's a sin to seize the poor into his net, but it was also a sin before that, when he was doing the lurking. That too was sin. The result, regardless, regardless is that the helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might, verse 10. Whatever it is that the Whatever the sin is, whatever the outward appearing sin is, the taproot sin, the central base foundational sin from which every other sin grows, is, verse 11, living as if God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. Now, we need to consider this passage, we need to consider this section in light of what many of us feel today, again, we, we look around and we see the tearing down of the institutions and we, and we feel what David felt, but, but we also need to admit here something about ourselves, about this section. We need to admit that David here is far ahead of the modern American evangelical church in these verses. What do I mean by that? Well, I, I mean it this way, that, that we've spent a few generations now avoiding the subject of sin, because we're afraid that if people come in from the outside and they hear about sin, they'll recoil from that, that negative message and they'll go shop at another religious big box store down the street. And the result, however, the result of that avoiding the topic of sin is that it has left the church blinded, blinded, not only, not only to the sin that's, that's been run out there, but to our own sin as well. So the, 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 reason, the, the reason why David here can, can go into such layering and he has such knowledge of the, of the layers of sin and he uses so many words here to describe sin. I, I don't know, like 40 different words in this section to describe sin and how he can get all the way through those layers, all the way down and see very clearly the taproot sin. The, the reason why David can do that is that he knows his own sin this well too. David's an expert on his own sin, therefore he can see out there ever so clearly. We're still in the same season in David's life that we were before, after he had grievously sinned with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, acting himself as if God could not see, as if he would live without adversity forever, living essentially like a functional atheist. That was David's core sin. That's why, that's why David says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. Wait a second. In the blast radius of your sin was like everybody was laid waste in the whole nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but the, func- the, the, the taproot sin was living as if God does not exist, a functional atheist. That's at the root of your sin too and mine. Um, David knows this. David knows this all too well. Living like a functional atheist, he knows all about that because he's been there preying on the innocent, helpless Uriah who fell by David's might. David has been there and done that. He knows it all too well. And David caused, or excuse me, God caused David to fall into his own trap, though mercifully, David's child died in David's place. But David is not a hypocrite here. He's he's not not pointing his bony finger at them ones out there unaware of, of what's going on in here. No, he's actually been very consistent, very consistent in his understanding of sin, and he knows that God does not play favorites. God does not play favorites. David knows, and he can see clearly out there because he knows his own sin, but we've lost our vocabulary for sin because... I think one reason for this in my reading of the world is that in all of our technological blessings in the last few generations, we have, we have unwittingly, without even realizing it, delegated even our faith to technology. We've delegated even our faith to, to even our understanding of God to other people. We, we let other people curate for, our, for us what the Bible says and then serve it to us on little bite-sized pieces so that we don't have to labor to understand it. So we, we, we've understood God just in, just in bits and pieces. We get a little bit here and we get a little bit here. And, and instead we miss the big picture of who this God is. We, we don't see a whole. We just see little bits and pieces that have been curated for us to our great detriment. To our great detriment. And so that the result is that we've become the proverbial frog in the pot, slowly boiling. And the destruction of our institutions did not happen overnight. It did not happen overnight. It happened over a long period of time. And our our modern abusers of the poor did not just, you know, start out announcing, "Hey, bleh, we're going to do evil things," ah, you know, slaughter millions of babies. You know, um, uh, we're, you know, it, it didn't start. It didn't start in the fifties, the nineteen fifties, with drag queen story hour in the libraries. It Didn't start there. It started simply with lurking, the sin of lurking, creating spaces where there was supposedly no God, and expanding the lie that institutions could stand on their own without God, that there could be even such a thing as a neutral space whereby Jesus, the risen king, does not say, mine. Functionally atheist spaces. This has been the plan being run, this has been the game plan being run for a long time, long time. And it's been, it's been covered in a very attractive veneer of pride and boasting. We proud, boasting people are attracted to pride and boasting. We have not seen, therefore, the game being played on us in our institutions out there because, because we Christians have shortchanged the game that the devil has been running on all of us in the church by shortchanging the whole topic of sin altogether. No, 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 don't say that. Somebody might go away feeling offended. We've said that to our detriment and to our culture's detriment. Okay, so, so that's depressing. <laughs> that's depressing. I think it's true, but it's depressing. Um, and, okay, if, if you feel depressed by that, and if that's where you are at right now, I want to say, um, yeah, that, that is depressing if the psalm ends at verse 11 for you. The psalm does not end at verse 11 for David, but, but if your functional God was the institution's, if your faith was actually not in God, if it was actually in the institutions, then you do have reason to be depressed. Because the thing that you were resting in has been torn down, or is in the process of being torn down. So that is depressing, and that depression is telling you something. But it, maybe not what you think, it's telling you maybe I had the wrong God all along. <laughs> maybe I was trusting in something much more rickety and passing than I realize. Functional atheism is not always out there. It can creep in. It can lurk and sneak in here in me. And I, and I do mean me, Jed, and, and you. I, and I say that about you because I know me. <laughs> um, but, by the way, I, I mentioned this, this notion to somebody this week, uh, a millennial fellow in our church, and he said very graciously, I thought those was great. He said very graciously, you know, but if I had had those institutions back in the day, they were great. He said if I had lived then, I'd have been totally tempted to trust in those institutions too. <laughs> Cuz they were awesome. <laughs> I thought that was great. Very understanding, very gracious of him. Um so so the the, the problem the problem here is at its root for all of us, for them ones out there and for us ones in here is who or what is my God. And if your God is, is a country or a party or the institutions, you have reason to be depressed. <laughs> you should be depressed because the psalm ends for you at Psalm at verse 11. Psalm's over. But it does not end there for David. Our, our need... Our, our need as a church is to reacquire God's vocabulary for sin, not, not, not to be morose, not, not to always be pointing a, a bony finger at them ones out there, but, but to start with us. As, as people wrote, Peter wrote um, in First Peter, judgment begins with the household of God, but it does not end there. It does not end there. There is hope here. There is hope because, because there is a God above it all. There is a God who is there. And this God, as we will see, reigns. And so, if, if if we might, if we might lift where we are leaning on, if we, if we might shift our weight from 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 the the right foot that was resting on rickety things, the institutions of this world, and we might shift it over, shift it over back onto God. There is hope here, strong hope in the face of evil. So, so. But David, we, we need to recognize here. David starts out by just being candid with God, candidly complaining to God. Um, but then, then he remembers, he remembers who he's talking to in verses twelve through fifteen, and then he asks God to call them to account, to call them to account in verses twelve to fifteen. So, perhaps David knows, because we still haven't gotten an answer to his original question, right? We haven't heard an answer yet, and perhaps David knows that if he lingers too long on his original question, "Why do you stand far off, O oh God? Why do you let this happen?" He might get the same answer that Job got. Do you remember the answer that Job got? And God, God basically answered with, "I am God, and you are not. <laughs> Where were you when I created Leviathan? Where were you when I flicked the seven stars of the Pleiades into their place? Were you there? Did you help with that? Did you design that?" Oh, no, 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 you're the pot, I'm the potter. Um, That was the answer that Job got. And this is, similarly, this is how God speaks in Isaiah, Isaiah 29, verse 16. You turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded as the clay? But the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? No, okay. David here, I think in the white space between verse 11 and 12, remembers just who he is talking to and he kind of already knows the answer to his question because he's read the book of Job. And so so he now speaks to God. He speaks to God as if he is who he says that he is, the sovereign God that we said at the very beginning. That's the only basis for why David would then make any request of God. Why would you ask him? Why would you ask him to to? Um, defeat the wicked or to save someone unless he has the power to do it. So, God is still there for David and he is still sovereign and so, verse 12, he asks God to arise and lift his hand for battle. Do not forget the afflicted, oh God. And again, David can ask this because, did, has God really, has God really forgotten? No, no, of course not. Of course not. But, um, D- David is is asking God for this as a human being. D- David God David knows that God does not forget and he says it this way because it's okay to talk to God like a human being. <laughs> it's okay to talk to God as if you are mortal because you are. <laughs> it's okay to talk to God out of your feelings because you have feelings and God already knows that you have those feelings. So speak to him out of those feelings. Um and David says, it feels like you've forgotten people. Real names are coming to my mind. People literally slaughtered on our streets. P- people literally taken advantage of. People literally terrorized and murdered. You, I, I see those faces. I see those names. I see those places. And, and I, I, I grieve at that. It feels like you've forgotten them. And David knows this, David feels this, and so he can freely say, why why do people like this freely renounce you and say that you'll never call them to account? But again, he remembers who he's talking to. Verse 14, he says, but you do see. You do see. I've expressed my feelings, but then I remember who you are. You do note not only every grievous murder and holocaust, but also every mischief or vexation, verse 14 says. God does not just note, The big things you see on TV, God notes every mischief and every vexation. (laughs) Another fancy word of saying irritation. (laughs) Everything. Everything caused by evil, you note it all. Everything in the blast radius, the stuff right in the middle and the stuff way at the edges. You note it all, and you note it all that you may take matters into your own hands. Into your own hands. Why does God do this? God does this not because he's out to get you but because he's out to get glory for himself. The helpless, it says, commit themselves into God's hands. He is the helper of the fatherless. God is out for his glory, and this is how he does it, by protecting the weak from the terror, from those who bring the evil. Okay, so now we come to David's strongest plea, but but as with Psalm 9, note that it's based on the pursuit of this glory of God. He says, break their arms, O God. Break their arms, Call this wickedness to account until you find none. Please do this, but do this for your own glory as the giver of grace, as the as the refuge of the poor. Okay, so now we should also note, how does God do this? That God, many times throughout the seasons in history, he uses means. Sometimes God wears people as his mask. It's his mask. And so when there is wickedness and evildoers in one sphere of life, God often uses people in the other spheres of life to call that wickedness to account until it is gone, as David says here. There's three spheres in life there's the family, three spheres of governance. There's the family, there's the church, and then there's the civil magistrate, the government. And when there was, for instance, sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, it was good and right. God used the government to use its sword to call the Catholic Church to account until the sin was gone. But it also goes in other directions. Our country's very existence is based on people calling their king to account for his long train of, quote, abuses and usurpations, which they believed they had both the right and the duty to do. Why? Because they knew there was a God above the king. That the king was not God himself. God is God. God is God. And that king answered to this God like everybody else. And so, in the same way, when there is despotism and tyranny in the home, not in the government, not in the church, in the home, the church, especially the elders, have the right and the duty to call that despotism, that tyranny, to account on behalf of God until. It is no longer there until it is gone. Otherwise, God's name, his glory is besmirched. His his glory is graffitied in the eyes of the, the helpless child or the helpless spouse who's praying to God every night for help. People, God wears us as his mask to gain glory for himself in the eyes of those who commit themselves to him for help, for refuge from tyranny, from abuse but in all of it in all of it it is god who does it sometimes through people sometimes through direct calamity sometimes quickly sometimes slowly slowly in our eyes but regardless it is god god who does it god who does it now we okay we're still left with questions we're still left with questions why the wicked in the first place why the scars god why the pain why the tears And we're never fully given a a full answer to that question, but we are given a full answer in the form of a person, in the form of a person. For we know that through the most wicked and unjust act in the history of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus, God brought the most infinitely gracious good to the world, the salvation of our souls. We don't get a full answer in the form of words, but we do get a full answer in the form of a person, Jesus who through his suffering through the greatest injustice in all of history gave us the forgiveness of sins, redemption from the grave and the resurrection of our bodies. So while we may pray that God would would raise one hand with a rod and and break the arms of the wicked and and maybe we might sometimes be a part of that hand, we might Be worn as his mask. We are called to walk and chew gum at the same time. With one hand, we might hold the rod, but with the other hand, we offer that which we have also received. We offer bread and wine and water, the body of Christ broken for us, his life given for us, and the opportunity in the waters of baptism to be washed and cleansed and risen from the dead and seated with him in the heavenly places forever. After all, that's what David had received, in part, looking at it from a distance. So we we call to account, we call to account, sometimes God uses us to call to account, not not because just the fact that we love God and that our neighbor is oppressed, but also that we might proclaim to the oppressors, to the tyrannists, the the justification the standing righteous before god that is found only in christ he calls us to walk and chew gum at the same time okay so so we do this we do this and lastly this results in a stance of composed confidence composed confidence verses 16 to 18 david has moved on now from a, a candid complaint to Calling them to account to God, these evildoers. And now he finishes the psalm with composed confidence. Because he knows, verse 16, the Lord Yahweh is king forever and ever. He is king. And we know better than, he, than David did. We we know this better than he did because we know the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is risen from the dead, he's king. King over what? King over every square inch of existence. There is no square foot anywhere at any time over which Jesus does not point his finger down and say, Mine. <laughs> he is king. He is king. This is not a this is. Yes, there is a rod to this. He is king. Yes, yes. When we evangelize, we are not just selling some religious goods. We are coming with the terms of peace and saying, if you would believe on him and repent, you would live. But if you don't, you won't. So, so yes, there's a rod to this, but there's also a, 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 the place of rest offered here. Offered on behalf of this king. And he is still God. He is still God. And he still reigns. He still reigns. And note the change of tense here in verses 16 to 18. God does and will continue to hear the desire of the afflicted. How do I know? I know that because Jesus is risen from the dead. He will strengthen their heart, the hearts of, of the afflicted. How do I know that? I know that because Jesus is risen from the dead. I know that because not only is he risen, he ascended on high and took the throne of God at the right hand of the Father, and now he reigns. He reigns. Over what? Let's start with that one thing that you're afraid of, that you're concerned about, that gives you great angst or anxiety, either way out there or something close in, in here. He reigns over that. Why the pain, God? I, I, I don't know. I only know that this is a God who takes the worst pains and, and brings from them out of, the, out of the grave from that resurrection life. In your life, he's doing three gajillion things. I, I, I have no idea what he's doing in your life, but I know when I look to Christ what he's up to. Even in the pain, bringing from that for you, redemption, new life, new life. David finally says he will incline his ear to them. It's this, this is one of the greatest truths. I, I'm sorry, I don't have it up here. Romans 8, Romans 8 Paul is talking about... Um, yeah, I need to look it up. Romans 8. <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 8, beginning in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Here is what's happening for you, Christian, when you cry out to this God because Jesus is risen from the dead. Do you remember Jesus said, unless I go away, I cannot cannot send the Spirit to you. But, But Jesus is now not only risen, but ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sits by the Father, and now he has sent his Spirit to us, and his Spirit connects us and unites us to him, and it says here that the Spirit groans on our behalf with with groanings too deep for words, and yet at the same time, God in Christ is constantly searching the mind of the Spirit, so those groanings are, on your behalf, are always perfectly translated into the throne room of God. And so, when when you pray that the Spirit groans along with you in, in perfect perfect will of God, and those groanings are wafted up to the heavenly throne room, and Jesus takes those and perfectly translates those and places those before the Father, and and as he places those before the Father, the scars on his hands given for you are placed before the Father, and the Father looks at those scars and says, okay, son, (laughs) yes, 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 a constant chatter in the cosmos inside the Godhead for you. He will incline his ear to them. We know this even better than David did. You can't stop it. (laughs) He will. He will do this, and therefore he will do justice to the helpless and the oppressed. God's goal is mine, David says. God God's motivation for glory perfectly aligns with what is best and what the world needs most. God's glory perfectly aligns with what we long for, refuge from wickedness and evil. To be pre- protected, to prevent the man who is of the earth, the man who lives for today, the man whose only horizon is only what He can see and lust for today on the earth. God is our refuge. God is our refuge, and he has proven that in his son Jesus. He is our rescue so that man may strike terror no longer, and someday that will come. Someday all evil will be wiped away, and heaven and earth will become one, and we will enjoy him forever, free of every tear, free of every threat, free of every enemy. So this should leave us with a composed Confidence in the face of present or future tyranny and the decline of our institutions. Not because our faith is in those institutions, but because it is in a God who puts wickedness into the grave, but can also resurrect it from the grave, new and alive again, clean, restored. That which is torn down, if God finds it useful for his glory, it will be redeemed and resurrected. It will be made new, even though for now it may be judged. Do you, wonder, do you see that? God has the power to raise from the dead as, as he commanded Ezekiel to, to say to the field of dry bones, come to life. He has the ability to do that with institutions, with nations, with anything. He's God. He's God. And he has proven his power to us by raising his son from the dead. The same God who uses mobs to tear down the walls can rebuild them just by speaking the words to those same mobs. Come to life. Repent and believe. The gospel is still the power of God for salvation. God is still in the business of bringing new life. This is God. And his very glory depends, his very reputation is banked upon whether or not he does justice. He always goes by his own timeline. But his own glory is on the line in it on justice coming, whether that justice hangs around the neck of the nations or around the neck of Christ, one way or the other, justice will be done. He does see, he does see, and we know from the cross of Christ that in the fullness of time, he does act. He does act. So in the meantime, God's call upon us is to wait, to wait with composed confidence in him. Waiting is one of the most important features of the Christian life. It's the hardest thing for American Christians to do, to wait for something good. We're not used to waiting. But we're called upon to wait. And the way, the way that we wait, one of the the key disciplines that enables us to wait is by making psalms ourselves. This is one of the features of the Psalms, is that we might uh, follow David's simple outline, simple logical flow, and make our own Psalms. We are meant to be Psalm makers ourselves. So again, l- let's revisit David's simple outline here. You can do this. He starts off by candidly complaining to God about the wicked. Can you do that? <laughs> you have that in you? Yeah, of course you Yeah. Then he asked God to call them to account, but he, but he remembers who this God is. He, he remembers who this God is, and he remembers that he's a God with a rod in one hand, but, but, but bread and, and wine and water in the other. So he asked God to call them to account, whether around their neck or around, we might say, the neck of Christ. And then again, he, he remembers who this God is, he remembers the gospel. He, we might say we remember the cross and then he comes back to this composed confidence again in him. So can you, can you wait for God? This is one of the crucial questions of our lives and the, the way that we wait for God is by doing our own psalm making. That's how we wait and then in the waiting we become more like Christ in the process. Instead of becoming bitter or becoming like our oppressors or our enemies, we become like him. This is how many addictions form, by the way. We become bitter, and then in our bitterness, we repeat the wrong. We, we become like the very people who have hurt us. But we Christians have a way out of that death spiral. We wait with composed confidence for his future grace in the form of judgment and redemption. Paul puts it this way to Titus in Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How do we do this? Verse 13, by waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the most powerful things we have at our disposal is the ability to wait with composed confidence, in the face of whatever may come our way, all because Jesus is risen from the dead. And from that state of composed confidence in our risen King, we, we can be zealous to both call to account wickedness, beginning with ourselves, to become aggressive repenters ourselves, to call ourselves to account for our own functional atheism, and we, and we learn God's vocabulary for sin in order to be forthright repenters for ourselves, but then we walk and chew gum at the same time and we call to account God's world with one hand. We, we, we call to the world and we say how foolish it is to de-God God. How foolish it is. But on the other hand, we hold out to the world the words of life. Not from those words, the words of life, God God will God is rebuilding the foundations and the walls and everything else. As he told Peter, on that rock, I will build my kingdom. On the words of the gospel, the institutions are not forever, but our, our God, our King and his word is. And it will not fail you, Christian. It will not fail you. And even if it takes until the end of time for some wrongs to be righted, they will be. They will be. He notes it all and He does not forget. Your scars, your scars will not go into eternity. Only His. Only His for you. Let us rest in that hope and take a composed confidence from that hope. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I. this is a, a deep subject and one that for which we may still have many questions and it may stir up many hope, many hurts for some people or perhaps for some people just one hurt that we have a thousand questions for and for which we are impatient for resolution. So on the one hand, out of that impatience, you, you don't tell us to be quiet and and uh, stop that. You You invite us to speak to you. So in our... And our impatience for resolution, I want to say on behalf of those people, come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Bring resolution. Bring a final accounting. Cleanse, redeem, resurrect all things. Unite all things in your Son, and will you please do it soon? For all of us, I, I pray, oh Father, I pray that you would give us faith, faith in Christ, faith both in his crucifixion but also in his resurrection and in his ascension and in his present reign over all things give us faith faith that, that that we may live before you with a holy fear that we may be aggressive repenters in your presence that we may learn your language of sin and and walk in increasing holiness and yet at the same time that we may speak to the world about the folly the folly that we found in our own hearts Speak to them of the folly of de godding you, of removing you, of erasing you. And then we may hold out to them the words of life. Oh, Father, make us, make us this kind of people, composed with confidence in your amazing grace to us, your awesome power, your incredible sovereign control over all things, which you work out for your glory. So do all of this and more, more than we can ever ask or think, because you command us to. Will you please do all of this for your glory, we pray. Amen. See the benediction. Christian, your God is great. Your God is great. So go with a composed confidence in all that he is for you in his son, given for you, crucified for you, resurrected for you, reigning in power for you. (laughs) Go with a composed confidence about that, telling the world how great he is. Amen.